Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm Brian Hyde, and I'm very happy to welcome Sophia Warringer back to the program. Sophia, uh, first of all, let me wish you a Merry Christmas and then say it's, it's good to see you once again. Thank you so much, and same to you. Well, I understand that uh, there's there's quite a question about uh, people going on strike in the UK, and this I'm talking spe- specifically uh, public service workers. Uh, tell me a little bit about the background there. Um, how how encompassing is this, and and what are some of the reasons why a strike may be a possibility? So that's a very good question. And the question really is who is not going on strike this Christmas? We have a very long list of people who are. So nurses, paramedics, junior doctors, hospital staff, passport control, border control, bus drivers, postal workers, train drivers, energy workers, um, some higher education teachers and some civil servants. So the list is long and may grow in the new year where other unions are balloting their members at the moment to see whether to teachers and other uh, healthcare professionals may also strike. So the list is long of those who are striking. The reason why they are striking or are about to strike are um, have many reasons really, but the main one as always with strikes is pay. Um, and they feel their wages have not increased enough um, and have not increased particularly in line with inflation. And some of the demands of the strikers are incredibly high. For example, the nurses are asking for a 17% pay rise, which, you know, we would all love. Would we all love that? Um, but my my argument really today is those who are not striking, those very few public sector workers and organisations who are not striking, and basically they are not striking because they can't. And those are the police, um, the army, and the prison service, so the prison officers. Now, and I, yeah. Do do, do the police and the the prison guards and the uh, the army? I, I mean, I assume that if everybody else is feeling the economic pinch, they're probably feeling it too. By law, are they not allowed to to go on strike? Yeah, so that's right. So they're servants of the crown. Uh, The police are servants of the crown and they're not contractually allowed to strike. And the same is for the prison officers and the army. And I think that really shows you the value that we place on those services. Right. So we allow nurses to strike. We even allow ambulance drivers to strike. We would think that they would be essential services that we couldn't do without. And yet they are allowed to strike. They have that in their contract. They're allowed to form unions and ballot their members and withdraw their labor. The same is not true for the army, the prison service and the police. And that to me shows how much we value them supposedly, but yet in popular culture, in the way that they are portrayed and talked about, the way that they're paid, the way that they're thanked by the public, we don't value them enough and we don't show them the veneration that they deserve. For example, the NHS workers during uh, COVID, you may have come across a very strange UK phenomenon called Clap for Carers, where we all stood on our doorsteps every Thursday evening and banged saucepans. (laughs) It was very strange, but it was one of those kind of uniquely British things. But we had none of that for other key workers like the police or the prison service or the army. And yet it's the police, the prison service and the army that always pick up the bag when other workers go on strike. So we will have um, the army driving ambulances, we'll have police manning the border force, all these types of things. Yet they can't withdraw their labour, they can't strike. And to me, that seems just 
unfair and shows actually how much we do value them. We can't function without them. And yet we don't thank them as much as we should. I, you know, I have to admit, I'm a little bit surprised. I know uh, here in the United States, there's, you know, been a very strong defund the police movement ever since the summer of 2020 and the death of George Floyd. Um, you know, this this has been justified and actually carried out in some cities where they've they've scaled back their police in, in parts of California. Uh, police won't even show up. People could be looting a store and it's like, mm, sorry, you know, that's what you have insurance for. I didn't realize that, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that police in the UK were also underappreciated, albeit maybe for, for slightly different reasons. Yeah, and I think some of the reasons why the police and other forces are underappreciated um, are to do with how they're perceived. So NHS workers in the UK, the NHS is our national religion, as you may know, and they can do no wrong. Um, <laughs> but the police, even a few of them, when they do wrong things, and there have been very deplorable actions by members of the police force, which we absolutely condemn, are tarred with the whole, with the same brush, the whole force, the whole um, force is corrupt or racist or misogynistic, etc., which is just not the same um, yardstick that we apply to NHS workers. We've had NHS workers on trial for murder. We've had NHS workers on trial for horrendous crimes. And yet they're still seen as a cohort as as to be venerated. And I think that's where a lot of the um, the gap in appreciation comes from. And actually the NHS workers did get a 3% pay rise during COVID. Everyone else in the public sector got a pay freeze. They got a pay rise. They were collectively awarded the George Cross, which is a kind of national award for heroic service. Um, and every time they're spoken about it is with this kind of gratitude and um, as if they are heroes. But I think the police, um, their work is often underappreciated. People think it's just arresting people. Well, that is true. There's a lot of preventative work that goes in community engagement, protection of vulnerable victims, you know, sitting with somebody in a hospital uh, for hours on end while they wait for the NHS workers to be able to see them. Um, the recently appointed new commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Mark Rowley, has calculated that it takes on average 28 hours of police time per interaction with a person with mental ill health. And that is mainly just waiting in an NHS waiting room. So there's a lot of support that the police uh, offer to vulnerable people, to their families of victims, preventative engagement work as well, that goes unnoticed and unthanked. And the few times the police do make mistakes, which they absolutely have made, uh, they are called out and highlighted above everything else. And that's where it seems to be unfair. Um, yeah, I, you know, you, you make me think about uh, the perception that uh, that I know a lot of people in the United States have of police comes from what they learn from TV shows, which, look, if that, if the TV shows reflected reality, every police officer would have dispatched two or three bad guys, you know, in the course of his or her shift and then, you know, gone home, you know, uh, and, and it, that's just not the case. As you mentioned, there are a lot of other things that, that are done um, that, that aren't flashy, headline grabbing, but nonetheless very um, important. What, uh, what are some of the reasons uh, that, that are, are police taken for granted in the UK? I mean, are, or is there a perception that uh, that for some reason they can can be taken for granted? And and where does that uh, that mindset come from? 
I think it's a good question. Well, since 1918, they've not been able to strike. So they can be taken for granted because they can never walk out. They can never leave their jobs like other um, public sector workers can and when they strike. So in some senses, they can be taken for granted because they will always be there. Um, but I think some of the perception comes from wrong actions of police mem- members, which we've, you know, have had lots of public attention and rightly need to be dealt with. Um, but I think the leadership of the police also needs to be very clear about its positive interactions. And then lots of the time, it's always apologetic, always talking down um, its members. And actually, that's horrible for morale and has really um, sent the police force into this kind of shame spiral as well. And actually, there's so much they can be proud of. And then take, for example, the army. So currently, our army numbers are the lowest they've ever been since the Napoleonic Wars. So that's since the 1800s. Wow. So we are shrinking our army numbers year by year. And they, this Christmas, will be covering the shifts of those who are striking. And a lot of the army personnel are on lower salaries than those of the people that they're covering. They've had their leave cancelled. They can't be loved ones for Christmas and they are on lower salaries. And that just doesn't seem fair. So I think we need to be fair about our public servants. They either should all have the ability to unionise, to collectively assert their voice and strike, or none of them should. There shouldn't be this mismatch where some people can withdraw their labour as a bartering tool to increase their wages while others can't and but can always be relied upon to provide that standard level of service. There also needs to be that consistency and veneration as well, how we treat them, how we talk about them, how we praise them, how we numerically um, remunerate them. So there just needs to be that fairness across our public service. Sophia, we only have about 30 seconds left, but is it likely that uh, police would ever be able to unionize? Would the laws have to change drastically for that to be so? Yes, it would require a drastic legislative change. I think it would be important, though, to have that collective police voice. So even if they can't withdraw their labour, we need to be able to hear their views and that that ability to unionise can provide that channel. Um, But I don't see that happening, um, really. I think the government actually is working in the other way to bring the others up to the level where they can't strike beyond a minimum service, which I think is the right direction. We need to have a minimum service of of support uh, provided, even if people withdraw their labour. Okay. once again, we are speaking with Sophia Warringer. She is a Young Voices contributor. And Sophia, where can people follow you? Where can they find your writing? And follow me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. Very good. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much. And same to you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Charles Brandt back to the show. He is a second-year law student at George Washington University Law School, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Charlie, great to have you back. You uh, you feeling uh, feeling good for the Christmas break? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me back. I love to be on the show. And yes, I am very much looking forward to the holidays, spending time with family, and having a break off of school. 
I think I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. And, uh, you know, speaking of school, um, I know a lot of few people right now are feeling a little bit bewildered. There was this wonderful offer of student loan forgiveness that was offered by the president a few months ago. And then the courts apparently turned around and said, no, you can't do that. Um, talk to me a little bit about the situation. For those who, who may not have been paying attention, Biden offered student loan forgiveness. I know some people were very happy about that. Others not so happy. Why did the court get involved? What did the, what did the court say? So there's a couple cases running through the court system right now. The Supreme Court has actually decided to review a case from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, finding that the state of Missouri likely had standing to challenge the loan forgiveness program. Standing is the doctrine that basically polices the courtroom doors. You can only challenge a policy, whether it be legislative or administrative, if you have something called Article Three standing, Article Three being the article of the Constitution that establishes the judiciary, the judicial branch of government. And it, it, it essentially requires that an individual suffer a concrete and particularized injury in fact that is fairly traceable to the challenged conduct of the defendant and likely to be redressed by favorable judicial resolution. So Missouri likely has standing. Uh, in this particular case, the one um, uh, about which I, I wrote in The Federalist, Judge Mark Pittman of the uh, District Court for the Northern District of Texas, I believe that is the court, um, found that two additional litigants had standing. This is actually before the Supreme Court accepted review of the Eighth Circuit case and actually reached the merits and struck down the program as essentially a violation of the separation of powers. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're the one studying law and staying on top of this because I... Um, I, look, I know the taxpayers, or at least people like me who are concerned, hey, wait a minute, are the taxpayers going to have to you know, come up with the money to pay these student loans that have just been forgiven? Um, we're breathing a sigh of relief, but, but it comes down to, it sounds like, uh, the question of, did, did the president actually have the authority to do this? And um, is that something that has yet to be firmly established, or did, uh, for instance, Judge Mark Pittman, did his, uh, did his ruling or his admonishment to establish that, or does this have to go to the Supreme Court? Well, uh, Judge uh, Pittman's um, holding was appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which on a preliminary basis kept the holding intact, pending review on the merits, which isn't a great sign for the administration. If, Mark, if, if the judge's order in this particular case is uh, vacated, it will likely be because the litigants did not truly have standing. He found that they did on the basis of, of, of a procedural injury. Um, essentially because they were denied notice and comment in the rulemaking process and because they had a concrete interest um, and they were denied, you know, the ability to to give their input and they consequently did not receive any loan forgiveness that they had standing to challenge the policy. Um, I suspect, though, as to the merits, Mark uh, Judge Pittman is 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 totally correct. The president invoked something called the HEROES Act, which was passed in um, 2003 on the onset of the Iraq War, which allowed the Secretary of Education to waive or modify um, obligations um, under the Higher Education Act for affected individuals, um, individuals rather affected by natural disasters. Um, it really contemplated targeted relief for narrow subsets of borrowers, but the administration really 
almost stretched the statute in such a way as to destroy it altogether, essentially arguing that this act, unbeknownst to anyone, Congress included, vested in the Secretary of Education this almost limitless power to waive financial debt obligations. They, of course, invoked COVID as the national emergency. But this isn't narrow relief for narrow subsets of borrowers. This is blanket relief for millions of borrowers who are certainly not heroes uh, necessarily within the meaning um, of, of the act and likely within the intention of the Congress. So Mark Pittman answered your question with a resounding no, the president lacks this authority, invoking something called the major questions doctrine to substantiate his holding. This doctrine was brought to the forefront of modern jurisprudence in a case last term called West Virginia v. EPA, where the Supreme Court essentially said, if administrative agencies like the Department of Education or like the EPA or like the IRS, any of those you know, three, four letter kind of, of, of entities are going to invoke or, or rather exercise this in unheralded power, a, a great power over American society or American political life or economic life, they're going to have to point to clear congressional authorization to justify um, such policies. It's not enough that they invoke some vague or ancillary provision of a statute that, that hasn't been invoked in, in the history of, of, of the statute or, or the agency, or it's been invoked in very narrow circumstances, they're really going to have to point to a clear statement that suggests that Congress intended for the agency to exercise such power. In this instance, the Department of Education was invoking an authority to essentially spend $400 billion, uh, greater than the GDP of Singapore, mind you, um, on the basis of the HEROES Act, when it really wasn't contemplated to provide such relief, and certainly, according to Judge Pittman did not furnish the clear statement required under the major questions doctrine. Wow. I look, I've watched with uh, horror not only uh, President Biden, but other presidents, including Republican presidents, wield that executive pen like it was a magic wand. And, well, I want this and mm, I'm going to find some reason. And it sounds like that's what they tried to do, only using the legal or losing using the uh, HEROES Act for, for legal cover. Is this likely to dampen the uh, tendency to want to uh, use executive power to, to make wishes come true? Or is that something that uh, that is still likely to continue and maybe Congress is going to have to rein in? One would hope so. You know, um, holdings like that of the Supreme Court, they set precedents that aren't just, um, you know, unique to necessarily unique to the circumstances that were before the court. So the administration really took a gamble here. And really, they wagered that no one would have standing to challenge this policy. And um, it turns out that they were likely incorrect based on, you know, Mark, uh, Judge Pittman's um, uh, decision, but also based on the decision of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is being directly appealed to the Supreme Court on an expedited basis. Um, if the Supreme Court finds that there is standing, I'm fairly certain that they will strike down this policy as a violation of the major questions doctrine and by extension, the constitutional separation of powers, whereby Congress writes the laws, the executive enforces the laws, and the judiciary says what the law is should disputes arise over application and interpretation of the laws. Um, so the administration essentially made a gamble. They weren't so invested uh, in the merits, the, 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 the rather statutory basis for their decision. And they essentially are arguing that their waiver of $400 billion in, 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 in debt obligations is 
a, a discretionary authority reserved to the secretary and beyond the scope of judicial review, which is kind of an insane argument if you think about it. Um, essentially, we have this authority and there's nothing the courts can do about it and no one has standing to challenge us. Uh, well, it turns out Missouri does for different reasons than the two individuals in the case uh, on which on which Judge Mark Pittman ruled. Um, basically, Missouri has this kind of third party, quasi public, quasi private financial loan servicer that stands uh, or, or likely stands rather to lose revenue. And thus the state stands to lose revenue as a result of the loan forgiveness program. And for that reason, they have standing or rather Missouri has standing to challenge the policy. Oral arguments will be in February and we can expect a decision both on standing and if there is standing on the merits of the loan forgiveness program in June. Again, we are talking with Charles Brandt. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a second-year law student at George Washington University Law School. I really appreciate your article. We'll have a link to that article you wrote for The Federalist. Where else can people find you and follow you on social media? You can find me on my Young Voices page, and you can also follow me um, at charliebrandt44 at, on Twitter. Thank you so much. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your listeners as well. Thank you so much for Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Sarah Montalbano back to the program. Sarah, I know you're going to be a familiar voice for some people, but for the sake of those meeting you for the first time, give us just a little bit of background on yourself. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Sarah Montalbano. I am the Education Policy Analyst at Alaska Policy Forum. I am also the Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices and a commentator, writer, and speaker. All right. And and you have a great article that I'm looking at in the centersquare.com about uh, reigning in big tech. And I'll admit, I'm one of those people who looks at big tech and more and more, especially with some of the Twitter files coming out, I find mm -hmm. myself thinking somebody has got to, to rein them in. You have a great article here about how maybe running to big government isn't the best way to do that. Talk to me first about the problem. Let's set the stage about what is the problem that we're facing? And then let's talk about the solutions. Yeah, I think it's pretty much indisputable at this point that big tech and uh, big government are a little too intertwined. I mean, I wrote this right before all of this Twitter stuff came out, so I'm feeling pretty vindicated. <laughs> My example was a report from The Intercept. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security had really close ties with Facebook so much that they had a special portal where government employees can go in and report misinformation. Uh, now, Elon Musk is showing us that Twitter has some close relationships of that sort with the FBI as well. Um, so it's, you know, they're colluding to colluding with the government to limit free speech online. Uh, there's a lot of data privacy and censorship questions that are all too real. So maybe the, that cozy relationship that big government and big tech have been having it wouldn't be well served by saying, we need more big government to, to fix this. Absolutely. That's kind of my take here is that I think regulations would make this problem a lot worse by subjecting these to a lot more uh, of this oversight that is probably not going to be helpful uh, is probably going to lead to more 
uh, problems with misinformation. Maybe the government will say there's way too much m misinformation online. Um, so the the problems are so real. I just don't see the government making this better. What, uh, Sarah, what are some of the proposed solutions that would involve using the power of big government to fix, you know, this this problem? Sure. So the first thing is to try to keep tech as separate from government as possible. Um, we've seen in so many industries that when government makes a bet on a technology, uh, a lot of the time that technology is a bad bet. Um, the biggest one of those, I think, is Solyndra, which was a uh, solar company, went bankrupt in 2011 after receiving $535 million in loans from the U.S. Department of Energy just two years before that, and they lost pretty much all of it. Um, so that wasn't a great bet for the government. And when government decides to fund the winners and losers, uh, it often picks the losers. Um, and then, you know, when it's when the government's subsidizing pet technologies and, and platforms and stuff, it's distorting market signals and encouraging malinvestment. So, you know, because wind power is so subsidized, uh, the private companies are getting more involved in it when this price is artificially cheap, thanks to these government funds. Um, and so, you know, even when the government does this right, it's doing it at greater expense and less innovation. And that's not what we want in our online space. It's not a truly free market that's driving the innovation, is it? Absolutely not. Not, not when the government funding is involved. So what about uh, antitrust? What about Section 230? I, I hear those come up from time to time as well. This is what needs to happen. What's the problem with, uh, with invoking those as potential solutions? Yeah, I mean, Section 230, is, it's a complicated question, and I've flipped on this since I was in high school and I didn't know very much about it. Um, you know, this fundamental reform that the White House talks about uh, with Section 230, that provides limited legal immunity to tech platforms that are hosting third-party content. So currently, these social media platforms can't really be uh, punished for the content that their users put on. Um, I see repeal or reform of that being pretty dangerous um, to to this free speech uh, that we really value uh, in the United States. I see um, I see the government starting to put in its own restrictions and regulations instead of 230 if they are allowed to actually punish platforms for the speech of their users. So let's let's talk about decentralization instead. This is a word that up until a few years ago, I, I really didn't have strong feelings about. The more I see the the partnership between big tech or you know corporate America and government, the more I'm starting to think maybe decentralization is the better path forward. How could it be applied in this situation? Yeah, it's this is. <laughs> I also wrote this article right after FTX lost so much money. And so I think a lot of people are really concerned about Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that. But we need to remember that uh, decentralized tech is not just those things. It's also things like non-fungible tokens and you know other tech uh, that hasn't yet been invented. So uh, that that's one thing that we need to remember is it's not just gambling on Bitcoins. Like that's, that's not the entirety of this industry. Um, and, and states can really serve to protect these budding decentralized technologies and industries. Um, 
you know, Wyoming and Tennessee have recognized something called a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO. Um, what they're basically doing, they're using the blockchain. That's a big word, uh, buzzword. Uh, but it's basically just using digital assets to represent voting rights in this organization and implementing rules that the members are all following. And so because you have these rules that are, you know, written in, strangers can make decisions collectively and securely for a business uh, without a central authority like a CEO or a government. Um, so, you know, we, we want to keep these things open. We'd like to have states show some more legal recognition uh, of these these uh, organizations because we want entrepreneurs to be able to figure out new applications, right? Something you point out in your article, too, you asked the question of, well, who wants to do business with, with strangers? But really, that's kind of how the market works. I mean, they start out as strangers, but um, when, when the market forces are allowed to work as they will, they don't stay strangers. If they're, if they're actually providing value, people want to get to know them, people want to seek them out, whereas the ones who are shady or the ones who are doing something that's inferior, um, well, they don't remain strangers either, but they're also relegated to the sidelines because people won't do business with them. Absolutely. And uh, I, I see this so much as I'm doing business with strangers all the time. I don't know the people in my grocery store. I don't know any of the stockers or the checker or the manager. It, it is something that I think is a little bit of a non-concern when you have this strong contract that ensures that everyone's following the rules that the whole group has agreed to uh, and that you're able to put things up for a vote. Uh, so I, I think it's a really interesting organization. Um, you know, they're used a lot for uh, investments and charity and fundraising and, you know, buying NFTs and stuff like that. But the, the entrepreneurs should be able to find new applications for these things. Talk to me about regulatory sandboxes. I know that uh, my neighboring state of Utah uh, recently enacted one, and I understand it's it's by far the only, it's not the only state to, to do this, but uh, what is a regulatory sandbox and why why does this address, you know, some of the, the um, concerns about too much centralization of government and business? Yeah, I really find regulatory sandboxes interesting. They're a legal classification that temporarily waives some regulations. Uh, so companies can test themselves in the market. Um, this is great for businesses that don't fit easily into one industry or framework and small innovators that don't have the capital uh, to really explore these things big. Uh, they've been implemented in 10 states for different industries. Um, yeah, Utah and Arizona implemented universal sandboxes for any sort of businesses, uh, which are really, really exciting. Um, in 11 participants have graduated from Arizona's sandboxes. They're doing a lot of really interesting stuff. So I, I would love to see entrepreneurs get to play around in the sandbox. Okay. And I, I, I'm just... I'm happy to hear you talk about, uh, you know, as, as much as some people want to turn to government, hey, would you come and fix this problem? It sounds like you recognize actually part of the problem is government involvement in the first place. So uh, turn to something other than government. Um, I'd love to learn more about blockchain. My knowledge is very is very thin, but what's a good resource for people who want to, to get their minds around the potential for innovation in, in that blockchain realm? That's a really interesting question. I find there's a lot of good online resources, but they tend to be uh, jargon laden. So I would look towards places like the John Locke Foundation in North Carolina uh, for regulatory sandbox information, uh, uh, DAOs and uh, uh, those kind of things. There are regulations that kind of describe uh, what the state considers these to be. 
Um, and I, I would just start looking up uh, what kind of businesses are possible with these things. Okay. We are talking with Sarah Montalbano. She is the Northwest Regional Leader for Young Voices, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Sarah, where can people follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at, at Sarah Montalbano with the O as a zero. Very good. And uh, have a Merry Christmas. It's great to talk with you. You too. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome James Chernowski back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor. And James, you're wearing a lot of hats these days. I know you're a busy guy because I follow you on Twitter. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you're up to. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Ryan. It's been it's been a long time, so I'm happy to be here. But uh, I'm currently the senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, focusing on technology and innovation issues. And as you mentioned at the outset, I am also a commentator and a speaker with Young Voices, which is a great organization. So uh, I've been covering all kinds of tech issues over the past year and change, which is crypto and, and Section 230 and antitrust, you name it. I'm usually there covering it. Well, crypto is on a lot of folks' minds, especially with all the news about FTX, and, uh, and there are other acronyms out there too. But uh, people who've been hearing FTX and and uh, you know the the loss of uh, was I think it was billions of, of dollars. Talk to us first of all. Set the stage and tell us what was FTX, what went wrong, and then what has has come out as uh, the House panel has been questioning some of the prime players. Yeah, those are all great questions. So basically, FTX serves as a crypto exchange company that's basically a clearinghouse, right? You go onto FTX's platform and you say, I want to buy Bitcoin, and they basically facilitate that process for you to go and buy and then hold crypto. Uh, cryptocurrency like Bitcoin uh, within their their infrastructure. Now, this company was set up by Sam Bankman-Fried, who's who is the CEO of that company. And basically, what ended up happening was is that as crypto winter was kind of coming into full swing, with a lot of people feeling pessimistic about the marketplace. Um, they were trying to draw down on their assets, and this caused a liquidity problem for that trading platform in FTX. And they basically had to ultimately declare bankruptcy uh, as a result of that. Originally, they were going to be able to protect their U.S. entity, but then the underlying social token that they used to support that FTT also went and tanked, which meant that the entire thing kind of just blew up. And to your point, the losses, they're still trying to figure out how much it's at, but the early indications are at $8 billion. Wow. Um, and the, the person who's in charge of managing this bankruptcy for FTX right now was also the guy who was responsible for managing Enron's bankruptcy proceedings as well. And he said that this was far worse, though less sophisticated than what happened with Enron. In that, in, in that particular situation. So that's more or less what you're seeing what's happening here is that major crypto trading platform just collapses underneath the sheer pressure of a lot of people trying to withdraw their money. Um, and then as you're learning more, people are realizing that just how poorly run this company was. One of the questions I have to ask before we get into some of the other findings of this uh, House hearing, um, I know that there are those who are like, oh, I've been skeptical of, uh, you know, cryptocurrency. This proves that cryptocurrency cannot be trusted. Is that a hasty conclusion or is there some reality in what they're saying? 
No, I think that that's a hasty conclusion, and here's why. Cryptocurrency is just a technology. It's a neutral tool and conduit. And what ultimately happens is that people can go and look at that and use it for good and be a force for good, or they can use it for bad reasons. And I think that what FTX highlights is that this was a guy who was able to go and leverage his brand, his name, his effective altruism to build up something uh, where he was able to go and use that technology as a shield to cover up his bad activity. Um, unfortunately, that was a very pricey lesson for many consumers. And I think that more broadly speaking, because not so many people are educated about what cryptocurrency is, what it is not, what it can and cannot do, it put them in a position where they were left worse off because this company was able to do what it did. So I have to ask this because I have this perception that Sam Bankman-Fried, who uh, was was the guy apparently sitting at the, the top of the heap here, He's been treated actually fairly deferentially by members of the media and to some extent even, you know, high-ranking politicians. Can can I draw or infer that perhaps he has done some favors along the way or he's fallen in with the right crowd because it seems like he he has uh, I know he was arrested. I know that he's he's, you know, being held to to answer for this, but it seems like the the kid glove treatment was was brought to, into operation for him. Yeah, it certainly seems that way in terms of how the coverage has been and has been handled when it comes to Sam Bankman-Fried and what's gone on uh, in that particular situation. They've uh, made it like you know something where it's bigger than him, and that if you know he just didn't whatever. And and the reality is is that I, I just can't get away from at least personally as you're seeing more and more details come out here that this was just the guy who leveraged all of that to do what he was doing with the platform itself. I mean, you can't say that you care about the planet and all these things that he was saying and, and donating to politicians, particularly in, in massive amounts of money. Um, and then, you know, go and orchestrate this kind of stuff. It was probably always there. And that's probably why he was, you know, putting in what he was doing in, the, in that process. We don't know all the details yet. So he's not been charged or rather he has not been convicted of any possible criminal activity. So I don't want to cast any negative light here. That's not true just yet. But I do think that it is something that is just astounding to me that you see somebody, um, you know, put themselves in this situation and that the kind of treatment that they're getting is relatively light by comparison to how we even saw the Theranos CEO uh, get treated after things came to light about how she was running her operation uh, or even how some of our CEOs of our current tech companies that are massively successful and not engaging in uh, massive fraud uh, in, in that kind of scale are getting treated by comparison. So it's very fascinating, as you point out, to see how the media has been handling it so far. Um, I have to ask, as far as uh, as an organization, uh, were there things that they did right? Clearly, some things were not done right, but uh, did FTX actually do some things right? It seems like they enjoyed a pretty healthy measure of success, you know, before it all came tumbling down. Yeah, I think that, you know, the company was somebody, was a situation where, you know, it was successful in part because uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is a fairly intelligent individual and he did know what he was doing with respects to uh understanding crypto markets and and things of that nature so it did create a certain level of trust built into him and his company by extension uh which i think in in a in a more you know fringe area let's say like crypto trust is particularly helpful early on so that certainly does give rise to to you know the popularity that the firm and him ultimately enjoyed so i think that that was more than anything what helped drive his company to success um and you know i think that that that's why you see it play out the way that it has is that basically because people trusted him because he is a smart person um in some ways that 
they were willing to trust him with this. And as that's a network effect, as it scales up, you saw more people get involved in it and it led to the success of the company to where it was at. But then, you know, I think it was, they got so successful so fast. I don't think that they were ever truly ready for the big boy pants of running like a multi-billion dollar firm, if you will. Right. Yeah. It, it just seems like, uh, well, I'm, I'm looking at an article from from The Hill that talks about how uh, Sam Bankman-Fried w- got millions of dollars in loans, some of which he was uh, not only the issuer of the loan, but also the recipient of the loan. That seems like a pretty, yeah. uh, you know, pretty handy uh, arrangement there. Yeah, I mean, basically, when you're looking through some of the findings that's come out of this panel investigation from the House and the Senate, what you're seeing is that this was a company that lacked many basic controls that you'd expect for a multi-billion dollar company. Um, Sam Bakeman fried had personal loans from the company out to himself uh, to the tune of a billion dollars. His chief engineer had a half a billion dollar personal loan from the company. Um, oh, the, the other fun fact was that they were using... Uh, into it QuickBooks for their accounting system, which, um, you know, as the guy pointed out in the hearing, nothing against them. They're great, great company. Like if you're a small business, that's very helpful. But when you're a multi-billion dollar company, I don't think uh, Intuit QuickBooks is probably what you're supposed to be using, uh, just, just as a general point of order. <laughs> so you had mentioned earlier, uh, right now they still don't know exactly how much uh, money actually was in there. Um, is there any possibility of the, the people who put money into FTX ever getting any of that money back? or? Is with that unknown, does this remain out there in the ether, you know, a mystery to be solved? Yeah, this is going to be something that's going to take years to find out in terms of how much money was lost, where it went, tracking it all down. Because part of the problem with FTX, as this hearing has shown, is that there really wasn't any good tracking of customer funds. It was commingled with FTX money. Alameda Research uh, was basically serving as the bank, if you will, uh, in this instance of holding all those customer dollars and then investing them into these, you know, the high risk crypto projects that don't, you know, ultimately pan out. And I think that, you know, even if you are able to get your money at some point down the line, two, three, four, five years from now, it's gonna be pennies on the dollar. Yeah, the lawyers I think are gonna do okay, but uh, probably not so much the customers. So what yeah. comes next? What's the next step in the process? I mean, um, criminal charges perhaps? Yeah, so for FTX, uh, for Sam Bankman-Fried, there are criminal charges that have been uh, leveled against him. As you indicated earlier, he has been arrested and has been sitting in a Bahamian jail. Uh, He was denied bail because the judge thought that he would be a legitimate flight risk, understandably so. Um, And and that's currently where we're at right now, is that we're going to have this this trial ultimately get set at some point in the future. We're going to go and see how he tries to defend himself. How the media covers it will also be interesting, going back to our conversation before. I think that there's a lot of very interesting little storylines here that we can go and get a peek behind the curtain in terms of how SBF was running the company, in terms of how he was maneuvering around these final days of the company. So I think that there's a lot that we can definitely uh, lean into. James Chernowski, great to catch up with you once again. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I hope we can talk again next year. Yeah, you too, Brian. 